Welcome to another little episode of 90 to Nothing, the only or the best all 90s movie podcast that you're going to hear anywhere on the internet. I am one of your hosts, Russell Sellers, and with me as always is my illustrious, well-spoken, very comic book familiar co-host, Sam Neely. Well-spoken? I've never been had that referred of me ever. That's that's not true. I refer to you as that every single day since we've known each other. I, that's that's how I always introduce that's you. That's how we met. It's like, hey, hey, that guy speaks that, really look well. That well-spoken guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That guy, that guy knows how to talk. I think I like. And I him. always refer to you as, oh my god, it's that weird guy who calls me well-spoken all the time. <laughs> well, uh, that's accurate. I am that weird guy. And you know, speaking of uh, of weird happening, Sam, uh, are you still in quarantine? Is that a thing that's still happening for you? Yes, it is. Damn. Uh, you know, I know that the state of Georgia has uh, relaxed a lot of its uh, its quarantine policies. So has the uh, state of Alabama. It's not, it's not a wise thing to have done. It was not. Uh, I agree. Uh, our state definitely did it far too soon as well, as indicated by the sudden spike in uh, – cases of infection that have uh, that have hit everywhere but oh yeah uh, Gainesville Georgia I was saying on the news uh, is like apparently a hotbed and that's an hour from here Albany has had several deaths Oof, man uh, you know they should have just left us like they didn't let us stay quarantined I actually got called back to go back to my office as normal so I've been uh, wearing a mask and gloves and all that stuff trying to protect myself as best I can uh, yeah. I would have been just as effective like working from home as I am in the office, I could have done all of my job from there, but you know, it is what it is. So uh, yeah, I, I am willing to say that I am more effective. Like I'm more productive working from home because when you factor the commute time out mm -hmm. and there's no, Oh, I got to get done to beat the traffic. You know, I'm going to go ahead and go and beat the traffic or, Okay, now I've got now I've just driven in and I've got to get all settled and stuff. It's literally I wake up and I sit down at my computer and I start working and I work until I figure out whatever problem I'm trying to figure out at the end of the day. Yeah, I was kind of the same way. I was doing I felt like I was able to get more done working at home than I am at the office. And yeah, that's that's probably just my experience. I don't know if that's everybody's, but I felt more productive because I was getting all of my stuff done that needed to be done for work. And then I could do stuff around the house that needed to be done. And then of course do what we always do and what we love to do, binge watch our favorite movies and TV shows. Right. Uh, and one of those favorite movies, uh, as we're going to talk about today, uh, we've decided to pull kind of a 180 on people. I know last episode we told them we were going to do uh good fellas, but that's not the case. We've decided. And you know, we really couldn't think of another movie where Paul Sorvino plays a mobster because that's just so out of type for him. He I, never plays mobsters. I know, dude. It was like, my God, what? I, that was the whole point of picking Goodfellas. Was, I know. Is that like, Paul Sorvino it, it, playing? It's the only movie where Paul Sorvino plays a mobster. And we we were just <laughs> stuck. So we were like, you know what? Instead, like We're really limiting ourselves with only doing movies from 1990. So why don't we – Change this format up a little bit. It's the reboot. We can do that. Uh, 
we're gonna whatever we want. Yeah, we do whatever the hell <laughs> we, we want. Anybody. Yeah, exactly. Like we are our own bosses here. So we're just gonna change this up, and we're gonna pick a movie from each year of the 90s through the 10 episodes of this season we're just going to say all right well we did 1990 last episode so this episode we're going to do 1991 and uh, oh shit sorry let me put my phone on silent we just like open like we discovered something here yeah no i i agree and uh Obviously, the Paul Sorvino mobster thing was a joke because we could definitely, you know, move on and do uh, do uh, the firm at some point. But, uh, oh my God, he was in that, wasn't he? Man, it's yeah, been, he was. Man. He was the mobster in that too. <laughs> but uh, no, we're uh, we're going to a movie that came out a year after Goodfellas, but somehow Sorvino looks ten years younger, uh, and that would be the Rocketeer, <laughs> a Disney unsung classic i think i agree it's it's the perfect like i have gone back and forth on this movie so many times i think the first time that i saw it i loved it i was a child loved it watched it over the years loved it every time and at some point in my 20s i watched i was like oh my god this sucks (laughs) but then i went back and watched it a few years later i was like no 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 i was i was wrong it's awesome and now i think it's just it's so it's so unabashedly cheese that i love it it uh, it definitely steers hard into the cheese aspects of it, but it's got a. I think what I love most about it is that it's uh, it appeals to the swashbuckling adventure fan in me. Uh, yeah, because that's that's exactly what this movie is. It is a swashbuckling adventure, very much a pulp hero, uh, because the movie is a period piece. Uh, it takes place. Uh, Oh, 1938 is yes. uh, is when it happened. So it's pre World War II, but Nazi Germany is very much a thing. Well, yeah, it's it's I guess it's pre American World War II. Yeah, pre- it's certainly pre before America ever got into into anything. Um, so you've got uh, that as the background. The whole movie takes place in Los Angeles during the golden age of Hollywood. Uh, so that's that's kind of the aesthetic that you're dealing with. And it's kind of funny because the uh, the character of the Rocketeer was not from that era, or at least he wasn't created in that era. He was created in 1982 uh, by writer-artist uh, Dave Stevens, uh, who created him for Pacific Comics. Yes, who also has a cameo in the movie. He does indeed. I uh, When I looked up a picture of him, I was just like, oh my god, he's a background character in this movie. Yeah, he's, he's like the – I think he's the German – the, in like the footage of the German test, he's the t- the the pilot that blows up. Oh my god, <laughs> that's fitting. Um, yeah, he was created as a an homage to the Saturday matinee serial heroes from the 1930s. So that's why he is, uh, his helmet design looks the way it does. And uh, as we were talking off air, that's also why you get things like the Golden Age of Hollywood, mobsters, and uh, Nazis. All featured in the same movie. Yes, uh, and it's it's a pretty basic premise. Uh, not like a, an experimental jetpack uh, fall uh, that the uh, the Nazis were uh, were trying to steal from Howard Hughes for themselves falls into the hands of this uh, random stunt pilot uh, and his uh, his trusty advisor slash uh, mechanic and. He's at first like oh, I could I could use this to make some money as a stunt flyer at an air show, but then he like, through circumstances winds up becoming basically a superhero. Yeah, and wow, it's just it's great. Like the way 
just sort of the way that they kind of introduce the stuff, uh, like they just, they find this thing and they're like, Oh, what's this? And they hit a button and it flies around. And then, then they realize it's not even hot. And then they see that you can strap it on. <laughs> and they're yeah. like, okay. Um, not like the, the premise is really, really fun. Uh, I mean, it's just guy straps on a rocket pack that allows him to fly at really fast speeds. He's got a cool looking helmet, uh, a nice light full leather outfit, I guess that's going to keep him from being, you know, torn apart from the, uh, from high air speeds. Yeah. Um, plenty of fun through this movie. I think that it's got some, uh, some pretty like solid performances for, uh, for the movie type that it is. Uh, Unfortunately, the movie was not really a hit. Yeah, well, it did when you look at the opening weekend. It yeah. opened up against, uh, which, of course, I would rather watch this than Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves any day of the week. Oh, for sure. But but City Slickers is a favorite. Like, I yeah. love City Slickers and always will. Yep, that's, uh, that's some tough competition uh, that it was going up against. And it wound up losing and never got a sequel, even though the movie does conclude in a way that sets it up to do just that to be a yeah, I, I think they would they had uh, originally thought of it as a trilogy that would have been great like i would love to have seen this movie get a sequel uh it's it's not i guess by technicality a pulp hero movie but it is just because of the the setting and the aesthetic that it uses even though the character was created long after the age of pulp heroes was over yeah um, and uh, the comics are still running i believe yeah uh, idw uh, yeah. picked up the character and they actually did cross him over with characters like Zorro and uh, I believe uh, he may have also appeared alongside uh, the Shadow, the Phantom, you know, other big pulp heroes from that era. So he fits in. He fits in perfectly with all of them and is absolutely some of the most fun I've uh, I've had watching a movie. Is I I would actually credit this movie as uh, being what really kicked off my superhero film fandom, like beyond just, you know, the standards of Batman and Superman from that same era. Like you get a more expanded worldview with something like this, because it shows you that there are other kinds of heroes out there. And, uh, and honestly, whenever you go back and whenever I went back and watched this movie recently, I was, I looked at it and said, wow, this is basically how director Joe Johnston would have done uh, an Iron Man movie. I feel like this is how he would have done it. And of course he actually went on to do uh, captain America, the first Avenger. Yes. So there's your MCU connection. And the more I thought about it, I was like, man, could, could the rocketeer fit in the MCU? Um, that's a good question. Uh, and so personally for me, I, I was, I think I was in first grade when this came out, second grade. Yeah. I saw it. It came on the Disney channel. I didn't see it in theaters, but it would come on the Disney channel all the time. And I saw this movie around the same time that I first saw The Sound of Music, because that's one of my mom's favorite movies. And it blew my mind that those took place in around the same time and during the same stuff going on in history. And so my thought process was, well, what other movies might have taken taken place around this? And what if they all crossed over? Oh, I like where we're going with this. <laughs> yeah. Sound of Music with Jetpacks. 
Sound of Music. Well, not even just the Sound of Music. Like, you know, the at the end of the Sound of Music, the Von Trapps are heading off to Switzerland. Yeah. Well, maybe they come across an Australian guy on a bicycle, like from the end of The Great Escape, <laughs> and he's also heading off to Switzerland. <laughs> um, the uh, and, and of course, I went back and watched uh, Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. The whole climax of that is about using witchcraft to fight Nazis. <laughs> so. What if what if the and, and that one features the whole thing of the children have been sent off sent out of London because of all the bombs and sent off to live in the countryside? Well, what other what other story had that? Narnia. The, the kids were sent off for the same reason. Maybe those kids met each other. This is a wild crossover. Oh yeah. Of course my my favorite would be The Rocketeer and Captain America. Yeah. I I could absolutely see uh, Cliff, the Rocketeer, uh, like really butting heads with Steve Rogers. I feel like they would do things very differently. Uh, but imagine if the Howling Commandos all had jetpacks. Oh yeah, like the Bucky wouldn't have died. Bucky would not have fallen to his death. He would have been like, oh, "I got this. I'm cool." Yeah, I, I can fly. I'm Bucky. It's so, like, but here's the here's the question though: in that universe. Would Howard Hughes still exist? Because Howard Stark in the MZ in the MCU is kind of the Howard Hughes of the universe. That's true. Would this have been a Stark creation instead? You know, I I think so. I think that it would have been either. Well, no, you could have had competition though. You could have had Howard Hughes and Howard Stark, like really uh, going at it. You know, kind of like uh, Edison and Tesla of. Uh, of the more modern era, I guess. Yeah. Uh, or kind of picking up that rivalry where they left off, always trying to outdo each other. Like uh, Howard Hughes creates a jetpack and he's just like, huh, take that Stark. And Stark is like, mm, I think I can outdo that. I'm going to invent uh, uh, a helicarrier. Yeah. Like there. You know, that's, I could see that. I could actually really be entertained by a Howard Hughes, Howard Stark face-off. I think that that would be a lot of fun to see those two kind of go at it uh, and see which one's legacy, you know, winds up like lives on. Of course, it would wind up being Starks because I don't know that Howard Hughes ever had kids or had any kids that went on to do anything. I don't know. I enough about. Yeah, I, I never actually looked. Like checked on that, I, I, uh, but I don't believe he did. You know what would be another really crazy crossover uh, for this, uh, for Rocketeer anyway, would be uh, crossing over with Lost, and they would be able to do that <laughs> because uh, because How of Terry O'Quinn. Yes, because Terry O'Quinn <laughs> plays Howard Hughes, yeah. uh, and I was like, man, what if uh, his long like an ancestor or a uh, one of his progeny goes on to be uh, John Locke from <laughs> from Lost. But but John Locke's father's already a character. Oh, that's true. Uh, yeah. Or maybe grandkid. Grandkid, grandkid could work. Is that grandkid could have to, have to have started young on both generations? But I think they could. Yeah, they could. They could I, have. Yeah. I mean, if you went with the Leo DiCaprio version of Howard Hughes, anyway. Yeah, that, that works. <laughs> uh, that's that. That's how I could I could see that going. But uh, but yeah, this this movie never gets. It's due. It never gets the love that I think it deserves. Its Rotten Tomato score, I think, was uh, was not particularly high either. Yeah, it's like sixty five percent, which is a fresh rating. Yeah, uh, but and, barely. That's like a D stands for diploma kind of rating. Yeah, it is. I think that's a little unfair. I think this movie is a bit better than that, and I think that if you released it in the modern day, especially with the uh, in the early days of the MCU, 
I think people would have been a little more kind to this movie. I think critics I think would have so. Liked and it. honestly, uh, unlike Captain America: The First Avenger, I don't think this one falls apart in the last act. Uh, and another thing that it has in common with the First Avenger is that I feel like it slightly improves upon every rewatch for me. It and it, it does now. Like I said, there was a time in my twenties when I didn't like it, but I think that was because it was the first time I saw it post nine eleven. And I was kind of, and, and this was several years after 9-11, but I was kind of sick of American flags being thrown into everything. Ah, and yeah. just that scene where Eddie Valentine says, go get him, kid, and you see him standing next to an American flag. I'm like, oh, God, why did they put this in everything? <laughs> Even though this movie came out 10 years before. Yeah, it was a, it definitely steered into a, a little bit of patriotism. Yeah, uh, which I didn't, I didn't mind that so much because that's what the world was, except I, I think the, really the most – the thing that I think doesn't really follow is that the mob, that the mafia would have had a problem with it. I think there are, there are people they could have chosen other than the mafia that would have been patriotic but still kind of criminals. Uh, I could see it going either way. I think that they may have, like the mafia may have looked at uh, you know the Nazis in the same way that a lot of people looked at the Nazis in, uh, during that time as just a force of evil that they don't want anything to do with. Yeah, and and they were duped. That's the other thing. Uh, and that's and see, I think they could have they could have uh, maybe played more on the they were duped. Valentine was sick of answering to someone. <clears throat> I think they could have played on that more uh, as I, opposed to just him actually saying, well, I'm a hundred percent American. <laughs> yeah. They, uh, they did actually play on that a little bit early on in the movie when, uh, when Sinclair is, uh, is meeting with them, uh, after the first, uh, botched attempt at stealing the rocket. And, uh, uh, Valentine is telling him, Hey, we, we can't find it. We don't know where it is. And there's a lot of threats being made in that room. Uh, yeah. Like a lot of uh, Sinclair throwing his weight around. This is before we even know who he is. And he's just this dude walking around in a room with a sword. So we have no context for that. Uh, we don't know that he's an actor at this point. So looking at that scene through those eyes, I was I questioned it a little bit more on my most recent rewatch, thinking, okay, here's this dude in a puffy white shirt. Looks like he's straight out of that episode from Seinfeld. And he's swinging his sword around. And he's got yeah. like three dudes in this room who are not really his friends and they all have guns. I don't understand why he's the threat. Yeah. But, uh, but there that is. And he's played masterfully by Timothy Dalton in one of the most scene chewing performances I've ever watched. Oh yeah. And of course this was also like, cause I didn't grow up watching bond or anything. This was my first Dalton experience too. And I was like, he really sells this, whatever this is. And of course being too young to know who Errol Flynn was, then I didn't even understand what he like what he was supposed to be like. I was just like I just I bought it. I was like I like this. I like this guy the way he is, and that wig he wears later on yes. when he's filming the movie. Oh, that is some that is some spectacular Jerry Curl wig that he's got going on. Oh yeah, and you know there's there's another uh, another kind of Zorro connection too because he's playing this character named the Laughing Bandit who's actually a noble ah in disguise. That is true. Yes, it is. It's very like Zorro, uh, Scarlet Pumpernickel. Uh, like there are Pumpernickel. Excuse me. The Pumpernickel. Pumpernickel. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's 
it, it's all uh it's all connected in that way so you he's definitely you know an errol flynn takeoff man that's that's kind of shady like you're saying that errol flynn was a a knock like a nazi in disguise maybe so there's there's an unauthorized biography of errol flynn that uh alleges that he was actually a nazi spy oh. and that's that's what this character was based he was based on errol flynn and that particular supposed aspect of his life which i don't know if that's true or not I'm really surprised they didn't work uh, Charles Lindbergh into this because he was most definitely an American oh. fascist. Oh, he he for sure was. Man, there's yeah. your there's your material for the sequel. Yeah, uh, or at least you know your real world tie for the sequel because the while he, Howard Hughes does have an important part in this movie, it's very small. He's yeah. he's only in like maybe three or four scenes. He's well, and he's almost. Added like I, I appreciate that they give him a character, but really his whole purpose is they needed a where did it come from, and pretty much yeah. When you have a a figure that legendary in that time period, you don't have to really explain the science or anything. You can just say, "Well, Howard Hughes did it," and that is good enough. Especially if you're a kid, like if you're watching that as a kid, and you're like, "Oh, he's just like this super genius inventor." Cool. And we're and we're absolutely done. Uh, I think there's uh, there's some other real world stuff uh, happening in this movie as well. Some other real world uh, like people and things uh, like the the Nazi airship, the Luxembourg. Uh, yeah, that was based on the Hindenburg. Yep, it was a uh, it was based on that. It goes up in flames, much like the Hindenburg. Mm-hmm. And apparently, I I don't know all the details. Apparently, that was not in the comic and was added for the movie to give it a, a more exciting finale and unlike you know how some superhero movies today kind of uh are like wind up like going down the cgi final uh, battle rabbit hole uh this one doesn't really do that i actually find the conclusion to this movie to be very exciting i think that they did it uh incredibly well there are i agree it's it's not just an action piece it's it's really more of a he defeats sinclair using wit yeah it's like he has to outsmart the villain yeah and then he and then the climax is him and jenny like speaking essentially and then uh you know off comes pv and howard hughes in a auto gyro or whatever the hell <laughs> and and how good is alan arkin as a uh, as pv oh i love alan arkin anyway I, is, we did two alan arkin movies in a row we did uh i, I approve I I have no issue with that. Alan Arkin is one of those character actors who is just uh, not nearly as appreciated as he should be. Speaking uh, of character actors, uh, Margot Martindale is in this. And I only say speaking of character actors because in BoJack Horseman, she's referred to as character actor Margot Martindale. <laughs> that is well done. Um, and uh, speaking of really great actresses in this movie, how about some Jennifer Connelly? She did a phenomenal job. Of course, this was uh, – I didn't see Labyrinth until I was a little older. So this this was my first Jennifer Connelly movie when I was a child. And I was like – she did she did great. And um, another another uh, actress you may not have noticed, uh, the lounge singer at the South Seas Club is Melora Hardin, who later went on to play Jan in the American version of The Office. Uh, I did not – know who that was because i am of course not an office fan but uh my fiance is and whenever she saw her she was just like 
that's Malora Hardin. She's on The yes. Office. Uh, and I was like, oh, so this movie has a lot of people before they were somebody. Yeah. Like, there's a, I feel like we could almost do a montage of movies where a character or, or, or where there's a lounge singer in the background who turns out to be like a famous person either later or even at the time because, you know, total tangent I'm going off on here, but the Hudsucker proxy, uh, I think 98, uh, came, uh, had, uh, Peter Gallagher as a lounge singer. And of course, Peter Gallagher was already kind of a big deal by that point, but it yeah. was just cool to see. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a weird niche. It's a weird little thing that, uh, you just don't think about until you're like, you know, really sitting down and considering, wait a minute, that lounge singer, do I recognize that person? Yes, I do. Uh, and I, I will say that in a, I know you're not an office fan, but your fiance is, so yes. she will, she will probably know this already, but in a later season of the office, one of the last, uh, Steve Carell episodes, he makes like he finishes making his movie and they show it. And of course it stars all of his friends, but Melora Hardin's character in the little movie within the show is also a lounge singer. That's a nice little callback. She's like, huh, this is a familiar gig. Yep. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, one, one guy we haven't really like given much shine to is the lead of this movie. Uh, Billy Campbell. Billy Campbell playing. Uh, I think he was going by Bill Campbell at that point. Uh, yes, he was going by Bill Campbell. He played uh, Cliff Secord, a.k.a. the Rocketeer. Um, he is definitely a hothead stunt pilot who really does shoot off his mouth at the absolute wrong time and then picks fights with people that he clearly cannot beat. <laughs> Uh, yes. Uh, I'm like the, Lothar. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. The, uh, can we talk about that? Ma- we'll talk about that makeup job in a minute. Uh, yeah. the Billy or, uh, Cliff as it were, uh, at the, oh, and like his opening segment of the movie, he punches a, a federal agent in the face and then proceeds to get his, his ass kicked. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. Um, it was like, Man, this dude's a trained fighter. You're a stunt pilot. How'd you think this was going to end? Oh, yeah. And he's also it's, surrounded by other federal agents. He's lucky they didn't slap cuffs on him. And the thing is, there's like just about his character, like it's really easy to take that kind of character and ruin it by making it the lead. Like Star Wars wouldn't have worked if Han Solo was the lead. I Absolutely not. Think. I, of course, I haven't seen the solo spinoff, but just the whole, the whole, uh, Caution to the wind, you know, kind of American cowboy personality type thing. A lot of times does not work. It has to be done just right. I think that uh, Firefly, the series, did it pretty well having their lead, but they also had a whole ensemble cast. That's but, the secret. Yeah. That's the and secret right there. He has the thing to have with somebody to ground him. And he has uh, PV to ground him. Yes. Like, I think he gets he gets a conversation early in the movie that – Nobody ever gets in movies, it seems. And when PV tells him straight up, he's like, look, if if she dumps you, it's going to be your fault. I'm telling you right now. And he's 100% right. Yes. Like, it's amazing. Like PV tells some really funny stories that don't seem to have much like connection. And he also has some really funny 1930s sayings that we were laughing about. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, but he is a like a barrel of wisdom whenever it counts. And he certainly is that guy who's like trying to, to steer cliff. He's, he's basically cliff's rudder. He is trying to, to give him direction and keep him from going off on into his own little tangents, which is a nice little callback 
to the fact that he's the one who designs the helmet with the rudder. Yes, uh, it's it's a little bit of uh, I guess literal symbolism. If yeah, you will. I mean, because you, you could say Cliff is represented by the jetpack because he's got all the the you know just kind of go wherever the power and everything, but then uh, PV is the one who is grounding him and and providing him direction, which also happens. When the feds and the mob are coming to to get the rocket from them in one little scene after his first public appearance, and he's like, put it in neutral, and PV's literally steering the car while Cliff is pushing it. Uh, great little bit of symbolism, and I love that scene. I think that scene is so much fun. Uh, like We all wondered what it would be like to have a rocket strapped to our uh, our vehicle at some point, right? Yes. Uh, like, just blow right by all the traffic on the road. But I love the look on PV's face whenever he's realizing how fast they're going and he's trying to hold the thing steady and move it. And you you can see on his face just how tough that's got to be. And man, I, I couldn't imagine like going that fast <laughs> trying to, to hold it steady, especially with, as the tires on that truck could not have been designed for something like that back in oh, those days. No, yeah. they, they would have been coming apart. Um, so that's that's a fun scene. Pretty much all the rocket scenes, I think, are uh, are done well. And and, and so much of it, you realize, <laughs> like later on, is they worked around the fact that they didn't really have the level of CGI they needed. By there's a lot of shots that just that don't even show him flying, or he'll be like half off the screen. So he's obviously being propped up. Or, turn camera sideways or something like the one where he's going through the field and, and it's just a bunch of dirt coming up and people <laughs> saying, uh, people saying big gopher, big gopher. I love that scene. I think that one's funny. Uh, there, there are so many like little fun jokes in there. Uh, but yeah, uh, as I alluded to a second ago, we do need to talk about the one, like one thing that always just bothers me is, uh, Lothar. Oh, Lothar played by tiny Ron. <laughs> uh, as you might guess from the name, he's a big dude. He is. He actually, uh, I think he only passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, I believe that's correct. He, uh, The makeup on his face is certainly a thing. Yes, and it, it wouldn't matter, like, except for the fact that his mouth doesn't articulate. And, you know, yeah, yeah. obviously, they're, even if it did, they were going to have to use a button, put his audio in all in post. Oh, they definitely had to. Could you imagine what his voice sounded like trying to talk through that thick? Man, I want to see the outtakes of them saying, come again. (laughs) 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 Could you please repeat that? Huh? I can't understand you. You got the right house? (laughs) How about the scene? Speaking of houses, how about the scene where... He's inside uh, PV's home, and he's of course he's there to to find the rocket for uh, for the Nazis because he's a Nazi thug, uh, oh. as the big giant you know lug always happens to be in these movies. And he has that really funny scene where he lifts Cliff's head through the ceiling. Uh, where is the rocket? <laughs> he's like, you sure you got the right house? <laughs> <laughs> and then all the FBI like shows up outside. All Lothor is armed with is a couple of handguns. So he turns and fires at the wall and the window. He can't really see who he's shooting at. There is a horde, a whole freaking platoon of FBI agents outside with Tommy guns, and they just start like peppering yeah, the house with it. Yeah. Uh, 
Were like, bullets free back then? I guess. <laughs> oh, joke from John Mulaney. <laughs> like, like you got full auto fire just ripping through this house. It should have cut the house like completely in half, given how many like bullets they fired through the uh, through it. Not one of them hits Lothar, and at one point he even just like bends down to pick something up. Uh, the uh, I guess it was the uh, the plans for the rocket. And how stupid is he that he didn't even notice the rocket sitting right there as a lamp? Well, you know, in those days, if you disguised yourself as a lamp, no one yeah. knew who you were. Fair enough. Fair point. Uh, I saw a Mickey Mouse cartoon where Donald Duck s- s- disguised himself as a lamp. There have probably been many a cartoons where that has worked. And yeah. and this really is kind of a a fun big cartoon. Uh, and honestly, I, I get the impression – uh, at the that at those early points in the movie, no one actually knew what the rocket looked like because even the FBI agents thought that the vacuum cleaner was the rocket. <laughs> that's a good point. What a weird looking vacuum cleaner it was, but yeah, I guess that's how it was in those days. I don't know. I wasn't I, around. I was. I have no idea. Like I don't know what vacuum. Like how many people had even seen a vacuum cleaner? Apparently not these FBI agents. <laughs> oh. Guess they're not cleaning their houses. Um, but in but moving on to uh, another big important part of this movie, and uh, I think one of the the last points I want to make on it is it has a really good score. Oh, James Horner! Like, yeah, yeah. It, it he gets a lot of hate, and I don't get it. I don't either. Like, a bunch of people try to make the claim that all of his scores sound the same. Which is not true. They're going to talk about that and not mention John Williams in the same I know, way. because John Williams always gets a pass on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like all his scores kind of sound the same, but they're all good. Yeah. Uh, Joe, like this guy, I really like his score. You know, he did a lot of really uh, pivotal movies for my childhood. He scored he did. He did The Land all Before those, Time. All those Don Bluth cartoons mm-hmm. he scored. Uh, he did Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Also directed by Joe Johnston. That's right. He did um, – oh, damn. What was it? Uh, oh, fuck. He, he did Titanic. He did uh, Aliens. Or, did Aliens, which uh, he, he does an, all the James Cameron movies. Yes. He won an Oscar for Aliens. Yeah. Uh, he also uh, he did, did – Master Zorro. My God. Like, he has another, another connection there. I mean my idea of a Pulp Hero crossover, the choice would be clear for who has to do the music. Yes, uh, except that he's not around anymore. Yeah, that that is unfortunate that uh, he is not. Uh, but if back in the nineties or the early two thousands that they would have just led to that, there there yeah. you go. Uh, another movie that we have to mention that he did the music for because I can't not mention it. Commando. <laughs> I did not know he did Commando. He did the music for Commando. Oh, I got to rewatch that. It's been way too long. Also did the music for Willow. Just saying. Uh, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, uh, that one. I was actually in the in the late nineties, early two thousands when they were when I was my because my dad's a huge Lord of the Rings nerd, and he was reading up like everything that he could about Lord of the Rings. I remember being disappointed that James Horner was not going to be doing the music. Oh, yeah, that's man. He he went on to do some other big movies like Braveheart and Apollo thirteen. Yep. Uh, and his uh, another big collaboration with Joe Johnston, Jumanji. Yeah, did not so, know he. Did, I didn't realize he did Jumanji either. Yeah, this and he did Deep Impact. I did know that. Yeah, yeah I, I loved that. When I was a teenager. Uh, 
this I mean, James Horner is an absolute institution, I think, when it comes to uh, movie scores. This guy has done some huge films. Yes. Uh, and he, he's done and it's not even just that he's done huge films, it's that his scores always serve their purpose and set the mood that they are trying to set within those films. They absolutely do. And I think Rocketeer stands as one of his best. Oh, I, I agree. Um, but, it's because it's got that just sort of like the opening shot of the movie, the main kind of score, the, oh, the main, the main theme comes in just on, just basically on the piano, like kind of that's happening in the background while the, uh, the garage is just sort of opening and they're slowly wheeling the little plane out and just like the sun and everything. It sets the mood it really so does. perfectly because as soon as that, as soon as the score starts to swell, it hits you. This isn't like, it's not set up like a superhero movie or even like a, even like a swashbuckling movie. I would say I, it felt more like uh, an adventure film. Like you know, we're about to go up in the sky. We're about to go. Yeah. That's what it felt like. It felt like flying because it is, it is so perfectly done. His, uh, his instincts on what the score needed were right on. Absolutely. Uh, every bit of it was great. I, I remember why I introduced Elizabeth to this movie. She had never seen it. And as soon as that score is coming up, she's like, wow, this music is really good. Yeah. And I was like, that's, and she wound up uh, really liking the movie. So, you know, if you've never seen it, and you've seen all the uh, the big MCU films and any basically any other superhero film. I would say you need to go back and watch The Rocketeer and tell me this movie didn't steal or didn't uh, influence. Uh, influence movies like Iron Man and Captain America, the first Avenger, which, of course, Joe Johnson did direct. But pretty much the modern era of superheroes, I'm pretty sure they took a lot of their formula from this. I I would agree um, because it is like, and I think that the fact that the that the rocket is destroyed, it it feels less like like it has the structure kind of of an origin story, but with the rocket being destroyed and him kind of moving on, it feels more like just a standalone story. Because at the end, it ends where it began, basically. Howard Hughes drops off a plane and says, I need somebody to fly this in Nationals for me. And, and he's going back to normal. But it does, he does uh, PV has the plans mm-hmm. to kind of set up a sequel. Yeah, because uh, Howard drops off the plane for, for Cliff, but he gives the plans to PV. And yeah. Or, or uh, Jenny has the plans. Jenny she has stole, the plans. Because Lothar right? stole them, and then Jenny stole them back when she was in the weird Nazi closet. So it's like, oh, man, they set this up so perfectly for a sequel. I would love to have seen this movie get one. I think that uh, they could have really expanded their universe a lot for yeah. uh, with another movie. And there are years and years worth of comics for them to pull from. Oh, absolutely. I think at some point there was like another rocketeer, like there was a woman who was a ro- who was the rocketeer. Yes, I do believe I I do think I remember seeing that. I think that was a more recent development. Yeah, I think um, it was. And that's that's another thing that I feel like this movie and then other uh movies of its type around the same time, like I mentioned before, The Shadow and The Phantom are also conceivably legacy characters. And see, I I know that legacy characters get a bad rap. I like legacy characters. I do too. I think that it's a, it's a way of keeping the spirit of it alive by allowing it to move on to another person because 
what you're passing on is an idea and an mm-hmm. ideal, not just, you know, an identity. The, the character can change as new people assume that identity. And- yeah, and also when you tie your character's origin in, and this is really more of a Captain America thing, but when you tie your character's origin in with a specific point in time, then in order to keep that character fresh, with of course with Captain America, they can just keep him frozen for longer. True. But with someone like Magneto, I mean, the guy's got to be 100 years old now. And because he is locked into a particular point in time as time goes, then it, it's, it gets harder to, to keep those origins. Now, not that of course Magneto is a character, not an identity. So there's not going to be a legacy there, but that was just one, one example. Yeah. Uh, and with a lot of these superheroes, including Captain America, he can pass that shield on to someone else yeah. and someone else can take up being Captain America, we've seen it before with both Bucky and uh, with Sam Wilson. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it is absolutely possible for someone to take that up, and I think the MCU is doing it right uh, because they realize that while Captain America in the comics might be ageless, Chris Evans is not. No, he's not. Uh, he is going to to age out of that role, or at least to the point where they can't convincingly say, "Hey, he's still the same as he was when we unfroze him in the ice." Uh, yeah. So smart move on their part to start introducing the idea that the shield can be passed on to another character. And I think they're, they're in good hands. Kevin Feige's got this. Uh, I, I don't worry about the, any of the direction they're going to go there. What, what really sucks is that it took so long for uh, Hollywood and producers to really figure out the formula to make a modern superhero film, not just work, but work for a mass audience. And, you know, part of it, you could say, I guess the audience wasn't ready for the Rocketeer whenever it came out. Um, yeah. And apparently they had also been pitching it since the mid eighties. Yes. And no, like there was, uh, there were, I think no Batman movies at that point, no Dick uh, Tracy or anything I, like that. There was no market for it. Yeah. There like back then, uh, I think the, problem they would have run into in the mid 80s would have been superman for the quest for peace yeah uh, 87 well the other the yeah. other problem that they had and this this is a, a real thing i don't remember where i read it so maybe it's not a real thing but i did read it <laughs> um <laughs> that uh batman it took them forever to ha! get batman sorry. off the sorry like, batman off the ground forever. <laughs> what uh, batman forever sorry uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh no but uh the the tim burton batman it took them forever to, to get that one off the ground because the movie Annie had not done well. And they said, well, they're both based off the funny papers. And yeah, there's like, how is that even, first of all, there's a difference between newspaper comics and comic books, but also there's a difference between an adaptation of a Broadway musical based on something and a movie based directly on a comic. Absolutely. And it it's one of those things where, you know, back in that time, I think uh at least in the mid eighties, whenever the pitches probably would have been coming in, uh the Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One were very new. People hadn't quite like really sunk their teeth into that. Uh yeah. I mean and most people's idea of Batman for a long time was the sixties. 
so. exactly. People thought, oh my God, you want to like do the 1960s? Like they actually did a movie uh, with the 1960s. Yes, uh, they did. Batman <laughs> and and it's it's silly, it's fun. Uh, but, oh, I've, I've watched it many times. Same. Like I I, <laughs> I love that movie. I think it's hilarious. But uh, if they wanted to do a serious Batman film. It it was going to take some pulling, and it's kind of a, a a minor miracle that it even even got made in the first place. Well, and you look at who they direct who who directed it, it was Tim Burton. But yeah. at that time, he had done comedies. He was known mostly for Beetlejuice, and they cast Michael Keaton as Batman. Which, yep. uh, if we had had the internet back then, my God, the uh, the <laughs> fanboy outrage. Uh, it was palpable even even in '89. They were so pissed off that Mr. Mom was going to be Batman. Yeah, and then you see the movie, and it's actually fine. <laughs> I know. Well, I, I remember feeling similarly about Christian Bale, but it's because I like I had seen him in a lot of things. Like I had, I had liked Reign of Fire and stuff, but huh. when I heard Christian Bale, I always thought of the Newsies. That's a uh, another '90s movie that we may have to visit at some point. Okay. Uh, that's uh, that's compare that to the, to the Broadway adaptation. Uh, having only seen the movie, I don't well, know. The, the Broadway one is on Disney Plus. Oh, well, there we go. I, uh, Disney Plus is really uh, going to be a boon for us in this show. Uh, that's yeah. how you can watch The Rocketeer right now. Uh, that's right. It is. It is one that everybody should go watch right now. I'm going to recommend that you do that. If you love Iron Man, if you loved uh, Captain America, the first Avenger, there is no reason you won't fall in love immediately with this movie. It is so much fun to watch. And and I would love to hear people pitch their own ideas of uh, of Rocketeer crossover. Like, how could he cross over into other universes? Where does he fit? Like, in, in your mind, like, where does he go? You've heard us pitch it. Now hit us with it on the old Twitter machine, Instagram, or wherever else that uh, you may have found us uh, here. You can, of course, find me at Russell underscore Sellers. And Sam, where can they find you? At Mr. Woodles. I tweet, and I sometimes take pictures of my dog on Instagram. And he is adorable. He is adorable. He's sitting right here right now. <laughs> he wanted to come in here while I was recording. So. Well, he he wanted to have a nice, uh, relaxing space and be talked to sleep. We hope we haven't put you to sleep. <laughs> so, but if we have, that's fine. That that works too, so long as you weren't driving. And which is where most of us listen to our podcast. Let's be uh, real. Oh uh, yeah, that's true. Um, should we put a sleep warning at the beginning of this episode? Do not sleep. <laughs> do, do not operate heavy machinery while listening to this show. <laughs> that's that's a bad idea. But anyway, we have reached the end, and uh, next time we're going to be delving into 1992. Sam, tell them what movie we're doing. Well, uh, we're doing one that I have seen a long time ago, and it didn't hold hold much of an impression either way. I didn't like it or hate it, uh, but it's got some great music, and that would be Sister Act. Yes, Sister Act, a Whoopi Goldberg classic. Yes. Um, and it's been a long time since I've seen it, too. I was 10 when that movie came out. Uh, I remember seeing it and thinking, you know what? I don't really know what's going on in this plot because I don't really care that much. But wow, wh- who knew Whoopi Goldberg could really sing? Yeah, and I remember driving uh, with my aunt and my mom and my cousins uh, to a swim meet out of town and listening to the Sister Act soundtrack. It's got a good one. It does. Like it's, if nothing else, we're going to be able to say that this has a fantastic movie soundtrack. And hell, that may spur par- like half of our conversation, like movie soundtracks of the '90s. Who, like, where does Sister Act fit in? Yeah, there are a lot of really good ones uh, from this decade. So we'll talk more about that. And of course, we're going to discuss Sister Act in depth and uh, pitch some of our own uh, ideas about it after we give it a little rewatch. 
So with that, for Sam Neely, I'm Russell Sellers. Thank you again for joining us on another episode of 90 to Nothing, and we will see you next time. Rock on.